0: This is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm Ayana Angel sitting in for Jason Johnson. Barack Obama's election as president brought on a racist backlash in America that culminated in the election of Donald Trump. But prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry wants more focus on how and why racist rhetoric reaches beyond politics and sparks real-life violence against people of color.
1: By the end of Barack Obama's time in office, 55% of white Americans believed they faced racial discrimination.
0: American White Lash, a changing nation and the cost of progress. Coming up on A Word. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race in politics and everything else. I'm Ayana Angel sitting in for Jason Johnson. It's hard to imagine now, but a few serious people once believed the election of America's first black president meant the country was post-racial. That Barack Obama symbolized the end of inequality and open racism. Of course, Almost everyone understands now that the idea was garbage and that, if anything, Obama's election reinvigorated a particularly poisonous kind of racism that has degraded our politics and made racist violence more common. Some have called it a backlash, but our guest today calls it something else. Wesley Lowry has been on the front lines of documenting this political moment winning a Pulitzer Prize for coverage of race and policing. His new book is American Whitelash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Lowry is also the incoming executive editor of the Investigative Reporting Workshop at American University, as well as an associate professor of investigative journalism there. Wesley Lowry, welcome to A Word. Thanks for having me. So Wesley, you state in the beginning of this book that race is a fiction, but racism is real. What do you mean by that? And why was it important to start the book there?
1: You know, it may feel simple or elementary, but I just think in this time of such elevated grievance and division in our public discourse, it's really important to be specific about definitions. So, when we talk about race, I think it's very important for us, especially in a context where this book actually writes and talks about white supremacists, like people who are avowed, who want a race war, who, but it's really important to clarify that when I'm talking about race, I'm talking about a social construct. There are not biological races. And there are people who would preach that there are. And so I think it's important to draw that distinction. One of the reasons I think that's important is that if it's biological, if it's built in, well, then there's nothing we can really do about it, right? It's irreconcilable. But that's not what we're talking about, right? So if we're talking about the issues of whiteness, right? Well, that's a social construct. If it's a thing that we've created, that means we can undo parts of it. Versus if it's actually about biology, well, then there's nothing we can do. And so for me, I just feel like that distinction, however subtle, is really important. Like I said, especially in a context when I'm writing about people who are literally avowed white supremacists who believe there are Black people, there are white people, there should be a race war. I think we just have to draw those distinctions.
0: Your book looks at the Trump years, but also on what was happening during the Obama administration. Why was it important to look at both of these periods and what was the difference between how violent racists asserted themselves in each era?
1: Well, I think that there's a few things. The first is that We can have a presentism in our public conversation and our dialogue where like everything happening now was unprecedented it's never happened before. And I think we all know that the world is hyper complicated. History doesn't divide into these clean like before this date, this was true. And then after this was true, it doesn't quite work that way. And beyond that, to look at the Trump years or the years we're living in now, separate of what they were a response and reaction to would it make a lot of sense, right? In the same way that it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to understand why Barack Obama is elected if you can't understand the historic unpopularity of George W. Bush, or why you choose a senator with relative thin qualifications over, say, a senator who at the time had many more qualifications than Hillary Clinton, if you don't understand the unpopularity of the Iraq war. And so we understand that Context really matters. And so you can't start the day Trump's elected without having a big sense of what has happened in the years prior to that. And in many ways, not just rhetorically, but also just very literally, Donald Trump and his movement, while they build on forces that have always been present in our politics and that were already building prior to Barack Obama, they are a clear and obvious response and reaction to Barack Obama. Right. We elect a black president. And in response is the rise of a nativist movement whose primary ideological planks are the black guy isn't really one of us. He's a secret Muslim who's not from here. Build a moat around the country so no brown people can come in and ban all the Muslims. It would be impossible to understand that outside of the context of the first black president.
0: We're going to take a short break when we come back more with journalist Wesley Lowry on his new book, American White Lash. This is a word. Stay tuned. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. You're listening to A Word. Today, we're talking about the book American White Lash with author and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Wesley Lowry. You focus on six incidents where political racism actually resulted in violence. Tell us about one of those incidents and why you structured the book this way.
1: A big goal of this project was if I was going to be writing about an era of increased racialized violence, it was important to capture the stories and experiences of the people who were the victims. of that. And so what I look at through these different anecdotes are different types of people who face this violence. Immigrants, black Americans, Jewish Americans, uh, Sikhs and Muslim Americans, right? It is very important to understand like the distinct and unique histories, say of anti-blackness or anti-Semitism or xenophobia, right? But if we're gonna look at white supremacy, right, and white supremacist terror, it's important to understand the intersections of all of those things. That the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh in which Jewish Americans are are murdered, is unquestionably an act of anti-Semitism. And also, the reason that shooter went to that synagogue is because that synagogue was helping resettle refugees. It was also an act of xenophobia. And and so it takes nothing away from our understanding of anti-Semitism. In fact, it enhances our understanding of anti-Semitism to understand the link between those things. That when Dylan Roof walks into Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, or the shooter walks into the top supermarket in Buffalo, those shooters just as likely would have walked into a synagogue or a mosque, would have driven to the border and massacred immigrants. And so that's not to say we should not understand it as anti-black racism or anti-black violence, but it is not solely and specifically that. And so for me, I I thought there was some utility in placing all of these things in concert with each other to help us understand this bigger, broader thing that's happening that all of these are acts of violence in defense of whiteness, right? This idea of there being white Americans who have a unique claim, who now feel aggrieved, right? And these are attacks against people who, by their very nature and essence, threaten that whiteness, right? And they threaten it because they are Jewish, or they threaten it because they are immigrants, or because they are black, but there's a similarity. I think the second thing I wanted to do was capture and get at the sense of how our mainstream political rhetoric plays into these moments. We know about the sociology of prejudice. We understand and know that when you dehumanize a set of people, other people stop treating those people as humans. (laughs) And so I start the book with the death of Marcelo Lucero, who's an Ecuadorian immigrant who lives in Long Island, and and he dies. He's murdered within days of Barack Obama's election. The conditions that lead to Marcel Lucero's death are in place long prior to Barack Obama taking office. But he lived in a place where there had been significant immigration, significant demographic change, significant white grievance and scare, and in which local political officials used immigrants as scapegoats for everything. If you have a problem, it's the immigrants' fault. And this got to the point where immigrants had been so demonized and dehumanized in the local community that high schoolers would go out on the weekends and look for immigrants to beat up. And that is how Marcelo Lucero gets murdered, is he is walking down the street on a Friday night and a gang of high school students show up and beat him up and stab him. This is why our political rhetoric matters. This is why when we have people who are in the 55% Or people who are in the nativist movement, why what they say and how they operate matters. Because all it takes is for either one person to take the things they say literally, or for in totality, the symphony of dehumanization to seep into our collective societal bloodstream. Well, now this is how we think about trans people. Now this is how we think about immigrants. Now this is how we. And if we can do that, and if that's what that looks like, we end up with people losing their lives.
0: So Wesley, arguably your origin story as a national figure in this kind of journalism begins in Ferguson, Missouri, covering the aftermath of Michael Brown's death. For folks who are unfamiliar with your story, tell us a bit about how you ended up in Ferguson and how that impacted your work moving forward.
1: So I was, at the time, a political reporter at the Washington Post. I was covering Congress and And national politics, not specifically issues of race, but I did often do stuff that was about race and justice. And I happened to have a backpack. And so when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, I was the reporter who raised my hand and was sent out there. And I ended up spending several months on the ground uh, doing that work. And then several years following that, covering issues of race and justice, specifically around issues of race and policing and data and policing. And I spent what ended up being the end of the Obama years in the Obama administration writing about this emergent movement to combat uh, vestiges of American white supremacy and to combat issues of systemic and structural racism. And as the Obama years give way to the Trump years, I found myself thinking a lot about what is my role as a journalist who writes about these issues. How do I navigate that? How do I think about that? Um, I've been very braced to write about, to think about how this movement would be treated differently under the first woman president compared to the first black president, for example, right? Instead, I had to recalibrate my thinking because the story at hand certainly wasn't that, right? It was now, what does the anti-racist movement look like? Or what does the playing field look like under a president that is... Openly nativist, openly bigoted, openly fanning the flames of this type of division, tension, and prejudice. And what we saw very often and and very quickly was that this type of rhetoric and this type of political environment empowered that white supremacist movement. At the inauguration, we see white supremacists showing up and doing Hail Hitler salutes. Within the first year he's in office, we see Charlottesville, a rally, a a, a homicidal Klan rally in Virginia, right? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what was my role as a journalist on these issues as these things changed and as these things moved.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more about the book American White Lash with author Wesley Lowry. This is a word. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word, and I am Ayanna Angel filling in for Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with journalist Wesley Lowry about his new book, American White Lash A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. You've said that mainstream media frequently oversimplifies narratives of Black victims and survivors of racist violence. This terrible thing happened to these Black folks, but they're resilient and forgiving, blah, 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 right? In a recent interview about your book, you talked about a Black woman in Buffalo who had a very different response to the racist massacre there. Tell us more about that and why you think it's important to portray a more complicated version of the aftermath of this type of violence.
1: So this is a reference to a piece that Jasmine Hughes of the New York Times wrote. She wrote this profile around the anniversary of the mass shooting in Buffalo. And it was of one of the family members of one of the victims. It opens with this woman recounting all the different ways she fantasizes about killing the person who killed her loved one. And I just thought there was a ton of beauty in that. And what I mean by that is it allowed this Black woman who had been victimized And this piece allowed her the space to feel the full range and complexity of human emotions. And I just think that that's very important. We often go through a very specific set of motions. Something terrible happens, and it's like what could this be? How did it happen? Were they really a white supremacist? Were they not? Right? Then we have this big dumb bad faith fight about that for a bit. Then it becomes explicitly clear what happened and how it happened. And then we go, well, there's no explanation for hatred. Let's have a vigil. Look at the black people. They're forgiving everyone. It's amazing. And then we move on with our lives. I think it's very important for us to actually sit in and sit with reality. Who are these people? What did they believe? Where did they come to these ideas? from? What Individuals and institutions within our society reinforced these beliefs. The problem is when we allow ourselves to ask those questions, we land on uncomfortable answers.
0: Obviously, you're immersed at all times in some of the worst news for Black people. Just from a mental health perspective, how do you handle that? How do you maintain your Black boy joy with all of this surrounding you? I think that for me, I mean, I've always been like kind
1: of a self serious person. I've always been the kid who's like, let me read the newspaper, see what's going on, you know, like, and so I get an odd joy from that to begin with, right? Broadly, right? Which which is important that there's not necessarily a separation between those things for me because of the weird way my brain's set up. But I think one thing that's true for me and one thing I note is that, you know, one, I think, and I didn't appreciate this enough at the beginning, and I appreciate it much more now, just really having community, having, I mean, like, Truly, just like the group text, the place to be able to like turn off the code switching and talk the way I want to talk about it and not be thinking about it for public consumption or the way some bad faith actor is going to misread the thing. I say. Like, Just being able to communicate and live and talk through and think through I think can be very important and very helpful. Second, for me, and this is not for everyone, but when we see things that are broken, that don't work, that feel like injustice or feel wrong, there's a desire for us to do something, right? I think it's, it's why we see hashtags trend. It's why people give money. It's why, like, it's why in these moments, there's like suddenly this like burst of activity because everyone is saying, I want to do something. I want to register. What I appreciate about the role that I get to play is that in those moments, there's something very clear and very specific for me to do. That when we watch a video of Philando Castile or George Floyd, or when we see unrest in a city, or when we, I have a job and a role to play. I can get on the phone, I can call people, I can read some books, I can help contextualize. My job is to help other people process and understand. And that, even though that is like leaning into it, in a way, it also does create like a compartmentalization, like I'm doing something. And what I am doing is hyper engaging it so that I can help you all navigate it. And so for me, that's really important. The thing I do say though, is I think that I consume way less news and media than I ever have before if what we wanna do is be rigorous and contextualized, a lot of times we have to step off of that treadmill of like this, 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 this new thing. It's like, all right, let me like actually sit down and methodically read, which means ignoring all this noise coming in from 19 directions all day. And so making sure that when I'm engaged, I'm trying to do it in a way that's thoughtful, that's contextual, that moves slow, that's not about the politics of a given moment, that actually rooted and grounded in. And I have to say, my life is a lot better off for that.
0: For people who wanna fight the rise and consequences of racist violence in our society, what would you hope that they take from this book and what would you encourage people to do?
1: I think first and foremost, I hope that they take the lesson that we are not going through anything right now we have not gone through before. That while history doesn't necessarily repeat, although sometimes it does, it almost always rhymes. And I say that and I mean that as a means of encouragement almost, right? That it can actually feel daunting if it feels like the thing we are facing is like this new existential thing and not just how America works <laughs> and how it has always worked. And that we are empowered with better tools and better communication and a better grasp of our history and more access to more things than ever before. That if the anti-racist activist and the NAACP was fighting this in 1916... You know who's way better positioned to fight it? Us today. I think that's important. I think, secondarily, the sense that these are not isolated, inexplainable, inexplicable occurrences, that this all fits into a bigger reality of things that are happening. And I think understanding that context potentially then helps us redress and address that reality. And then, third, I just think that especially the time when we're seeing. Our educators come under attack. We're seeing books be burned and, and banned. When our own history is under full frontal assault by nativist partisans, I think it's extremely important for us to defend it. At a time like this, simply telling the truth in public is an act of activism. It's a radical act. Writing down our history writing and writing down what's happening to us today and just Having the audacity to tell the truth is unquestionably an act of activism. And so that in a time when many people are arguing that objective truth and reality doesn't matter, that our history doesn't matter, that having a commitment to continuing to tell these stories, to place them in the correct context, I think that's something that all of us can do. And to be students of it, when people are banning books, one of the most radical things you can do is go read some books. Right. And so I think that something very simple all of us can do in this moment is engage in our history, engage in our education in these ways, again, as a means of, of personal protest to an environment right now where we have powerful people who are extremely invested in denying us accurate understandings of the world.
0: Wesley Lowry is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and an author. His latest book is American Whitelash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Thank you, Wesley, for joining us today on A Word. Of course. Thank you. Anytime. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email address is aword at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richman is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Ayana Angel. Tune in next week for a word. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who
1: get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts